So, um, earlier today, Brad mentioned that uh, we are at the beginning of a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And uh, last week I did an overview uh, of the Ten Commandments. And interestingly enough, I didn't start with Matthew, I mean, I didn't start with uh, Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. I started with Matthew 22. And the reason we start there is because uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and experts of the law were getting together. And they were trying to test Jesus, and they essentially were trying to make him look bad publicly. And, uh, and so one of these guys, who's an expert in the law, came up and asked Jesus, he said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And what he was trying to do really was kind of trap Jesus uh, publicly, but Jesus gave a very interesting response. And in his response, he essentially summed up the Ten Commandments when he said, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary of the Ten Commandments, essentially, right? So we talked about last week how essentially what Jesus did is he said the Ten Commandments are really all about love. And so many of us think about the Ten Commandments. We think, oh, you know, it's just this archaic set of standards for uh, some pre-modern people who couldn't control themselves. That's really the reason the Ten Commandments existed. You know, or the real reason the Ten Commandments exist is... You know, for, uh, for, for people who are, you know, kind of legalistic and judgmental to use them to have sort of moral power and authority over people. We have all these different reasons of why we think the Ten Commandments exist or perceptions that we have about them. And Jesus, interestingly enough, not only talks about uh, a, a true perception to the Pharisees, but I think he communicates a true perception, a true reality of the Ten Commandments for us, too, which is they're about love. That, that ultimately and fundamentally what the Ten Commandments are about loving God. They're about loving our fellow man, and really, they're also about loving ourselves as well. We talked about how part of what the Ten Commandments are doing is they're actually painting a picture. They're, they're weaving a tapestry of a society and a culture and a world that you actually want to live in. It, it's a world where there's no crime, right? It's a world where people tell the truth about one another. It's a world where we're content with what we have and we don't desire other people's things. It's a world where our moms and dads are faithful to the covenant vows and marriage that they made to one another. It's the world that actually we all desire. It's a loving world. That's what Jesus was saying in the Ten Commandments. And so we see that part of what Jesus was doing is he was saying, the Ten Commandments paint a picture of the world that you wish existed, right? That's one thing. One of the other things we talked about last week is we talked about how part of what Jesus is doing and part of what Galatians does is uh, essentially the Ten Commandments ultimately drive us to Jesus because we realize that there's no way in the world that we can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, right? Only Jesus could do that, and so it drives us to Jesus. The Ten Commandments were never intended as a, as a group of, or a list of rules whereby if we kept them, that God would go, okay, you're in heaven, and some of you guys aren't. They're all to drive us to Jesus. They're all to make us feel our need. Now today we're actually going to be jumping into the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to ask you, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. It'll be up on the screen. And I'm going to read all of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to be doing, again, Exodus 20. But uh, the sermon is primarily going to be, as Brad mentioned, about this first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. And so I'm going to ask that you follow along with me, either in your Bibles or up on the screen here, as I read Exodus chapter 20. Verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them, or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, as always, I just want to ask that your Holy Spirit would be in this place. Father, I pray that none of us could leave this room this morning without having had an encounter with you, the living God. Father, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would take your word and that you would sink it down through our ears, through our brains, all the way down into our hearts. That it might truly change uh, the way that we see you, the way that we see the world, and even the way that we see ourselves. Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. Let me just call time out here for a second. And let me ask you, when you think about this term, gods, with a little g, like multiple gods, what really comes to mind these days? I'll tell you what came to my mind initially when I thought about this as I was doing sermon preparation. I thought about, uh, I thought about all the gods that we learned about maybe like in middle school when we talked about the Greek pantheon or various other gods. But then I thought the most famous god right now, little g god, is probably this guy right here, Thor. All right. Now, some of you guys understand the Greek pantheon, but most of you understand the movie The Avengers. right? Now, this is not actually from The Avengers, and uh, so this is probably Thor from when I was a kid from a cartoon series. Uh, but he's this, you know, Norse god with a little g who wields a hammer and makes thunder and lightning. And so when we think about gods with a little g, we're probably thinking about the Avengers, really, right? You know, again, maybe some of you are thinking about the Greek pantheon, right? Maybe, you know, maybe you remember this from your uh, childhood education. And up here in this list of the Greek pantheon, we have Aphrodite, you know, who is the goddess of love and beauty. We have Apollo, who's the god of music and art. Ares and Athena, the god and goddess of war, Ares sort of is this wild guy who's really strong, and uh, Athena is the goddess of war, but she's all about strategy. Bacchus, who's the god of pleasure. So maybe some of you are thinking about gods in that regard. Maybe some of you are thinking about the Hindu pantheon or all the Hindu gods. Now, depending on who you read and what you know about Hinduism, there's either 33 or there are 33 million gods. They debate that within their own, uh, you know, leaders of the religion. But three of their main uh, gods are Shiva. Shiva is the god of destruction. 
Krishna, who is the God of love, joy, and believe it or not, and I read this, and I think it's true, although I may have misunderstood it, but is also the God of cows, okay? And I'm not intending to make fun of um, that too much, but just to say, I grew up across the street from a cow pasture, and uh, I'm not sure exactly what that all means, but anyway, the point is that that's Krishna. Kali is the goddess of transformation and death. Maybe some of you think about the Egyptian pantheon uh, with Horus and Isis and Anubis and Osiris. Maybe some of you think about the Canaanite gods. You've been in church a long time, and so you've heard uh, the name of Baal. You've heard the name of uh, Ashtoreth. Maybe the Mesopotamian gods, Marduk and Ishtar. Maybe Native American gods of the sun and the moon and the fish and crops. The list of these gods goes on and on and on and on. And so when you hear this first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, it's entirely possible that every single one of you is going, can we just go on to the second commandment? Because I got this one. Right? I mean, I like Thor, and I like the Avengers, but there's no danger in me worshiping him. Right? I like the sun. I like the moon. We're not in danger of me worshiping those gods. There's no way that I'm tempted to have any other gods. Some of you may be thinking that, right? It's, really, it's very possible. Well, let me call time out here, and let me actually start with this. Let's talk for a moment about what this first commandment actually means, what God is actually communicating in this first commandment. Again, the words are exactly this. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, there's very little exegetical work to do here, but I'm going to do it anyway. And the first thing you hear, see here is the word you, right? Now, here's what's interesting, is that uh, Moses is up on the mountain, right, in the presence of God. And at the foot of the mountain are all of these Israelites uh, who are kind of hanging out. There's over a million of them there at the foot of the mountain. And you would assume that what God might have done is he might have communicated to Moses and said, hey, I want you to read these Ten Commandments to the people, and you would have assumed that God might have given the Ten Commandments in the plural form, right? I mean, we're, we're individualists because we're Americans, but they sort of had this groupthink idea that was much more a part of their culture. But part of what God is doing is he's saying, these commandments that I'm giving to you, this commandment that you shall have no other gods before me, I want you to know that this is a commandment for you, for you, individual Israelite. And now, as we sit here in the theater this morning, this is also a commandment for you individually. You don't need to think about anybody else and what their gods might be. This is a command for you individually. God is speaking to you and saying, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, the other part of exegetical work in this verse is this term before me. Now, for the longest time when I was a kid, I thought what this meant was, well, it's okay to have other gods as long as they don't sort of take priority in front of God. Does that make sense? Like, nobody can be, you know, sort of uh, over God. Now, that's true, and it is an implication of this, but that's not what it means. In fact, what that, that phrase there, before me, actually means before the face of God. It's a Hebrew idiom, which meant in my presence or in the presence of God. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have other gods as long as they're not above God. And that's partially true. But rather, what it means is, is that God says, I won't tolerate any other gods in my presence before my face. It's actually a reminder that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere, that he sees everything. And so maybe you could actually uh, translate this verse by saying, you, as an individual sitting here this morning, shall have no other gods in my presence ever. Oh, and by the way, I'm omnipresent, so I see everything. Now, again, you may think that this first commandment isn't for you, right? You may uh, think that the reason it exists is, uh, is you know, for somebody else. But what you need to understand is that anytime you have a rule, anytime you have a commandment, the reason there's a commandment or a rule that exists is because somebody somewhere 
did something that necessitated the establishment of that rule. Does that make sense? Now, in order to make my point, I'm going to put some slides up here very quickly. And uh, these are examples of rules that had to be established. I believe the first one is about a chainsaw, okay? Now, there for some reason is a rule that they put on a chainsaw packaging that says, do not hold the wrong end of the chainsaw. Okay, that, I don't know if anybody else sees the humor there, but the reason that's funny is because the reason they had to put that sign on there is because somebody grabbed the wrong end of a chainsaw, right? Okay, I'm, I'm going places, I promise. Okay, look at this next sign. It's a little funnier to me, actually. I don't know if you see this, but it's a clothes hanger that says, caution, do not swallow. In other words, somebody somewhere in the course of human clothes cleaning history tried to swallow a clothes hanger. And apparently it's happened enough times that they had to put a caution sign on the outside of the clothes hanger. You get it? Right? Okay, two more. You'll, you'll like these. This is actually, in some respects, the funniest one to me because it's the most subtle. This is actually a sign that's on the, the side of a canister of peanuts. And you see the ingredients up there say, peanuts, 100%. And then it's got this highly uh, superfluous uh, warning down below which says, allergy advice contains peanuts. Okay? In other words, somebody with a peanut allergy decided to eat peanuts and it made them sick, right? You think, again, does anybody see the subtlety of that? I thought it was hilarious. Anyway, okay. Last one, I promise. And this one actually is the most overly funny. funny. Again, you'd think you wouldn't have to put that. Maybe that's a joke. I don't know. But anyway, the point is that the reason why the first commandment exists, that you shall have no other gods before me, is because having other gods in the presence of God was obviously a temptation for someone somewhere. Obviously, it was a temptation for someone to have a God, another God, in God's presence. And frankly, I would argue that the reason the first commandment exists is, in fact, because we are all tempted to have other gods. The reason it exists is not just because it's a temptation for someone, but I think it's a temptation for everyone. I think we have the next slide up here. Now, I've got, uh, I've got another quote. Now, I admit that uh, I actually used this quote six weeks ago, and so I apologize for doubling up on a quote so, so quickly, but I think it really actually communicates to this point that we actually have other gods. This is actually a quote from David Foster Wallace. I found this in a book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller, and in fact, most of this sermon is informed by, by this book, Counterfeit Gods and Tim Keller. If you've never read it, come up to me, and I'll make sure that we get you a copy. It's a phenomenal book, but, but listen to this quote by David Foster Wallace. He's a writer. He's an atheist. And uh, he's giving this address to, uh, to, to the students of Kenyon College. Listen to what he has to say. Again, as an atheist who's speaking and giving their commencement address. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. So he's an atheist, but he's saying there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of a God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some other inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You'll end up feeling weak and afraid. 
and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious, they're default settings. Now, this is what's interesting about this quote, this is the reason I'm using it, is because here's a man who is an atheist, right? I mean, here's a man who, who couldn't have been much more secular than he was, he committed suicide actually a couple years after actually giving this address, and what David Foster Wallace is saying here is what God already knows in the Ten Commandments, it's exactly why he gives the first commandment, and God knows this, that we are constantly worshiping something. That it's our default setting. It's unconscious. Is there's something that we're worshiping right now in this room other than God? It's our default setting. And if David Foster Wallace is correct, and if God is correct, the question is, what are you worshiping? Now, let me call time out here. This might be a point at which it's helpful to ask the question, you know, what does God mean by other gods? Uh, what, do, what do we mean when we talk about this, this phrase, other gods? What are we tempted to worship? And this uh, definition you see up on the screen here is actually a definition, again, from Tim Keller. And let me just say this. A god, in this instance, is not a piece of clay. It's not a piece of bronze. It's not a piece of wood. It's not necessarily Thor. It's not necessarily part of the Hindu pantheon, right? But a god is any good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. Okay, let me, let me let that sink in for a minute. That a god is any good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. In other words, there are all sorts of great things in life. We're going to go through a list of all these great things in a few minutes. There's nothing wrong with those things. They're good. God gave them to us to enjoy, to make our lives wonderful. The problem is when we take one of those good things that God has created and we make it ultimate, we make it more important than God is. Listen to this quote by Tim Keller. He says this, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that, should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Okay, let that sink in for a minute. So if you lost this thing, then your life would hardly, hardly feel worth living if you lost it. You, you guys can already fill in that blank a little bit in your own minds. An idol, or again, a counterfeit God, has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. And so what Tim Keller is saying here and what God is communicating in Scripture is that a counterfeit God is anything that's so central to your life that if you don't have it, that you just feel like life isn't worth living. Right? That a counterfeit God or a God, another God that we might have in the presence of the true God, is any good thing that God has given us that we turn into an ultimate thing. And so the question, again, for each of you in this room this morning is this. What good thing is more important to you this morning? What good thing that God has created is more important to you in your day-to-day -day life than God, the author of reality? What's your God in the presence of God? Now here, I'm going to give you a list of a few different options of what your God might actually be. These are 
These are gods that are very common in our culture, right? And, and as I say this, let me also say that the, uh, the negative effect or the fallout of having a counterfeit god or having a god in the presence of God is that at best it makes your life miserable and highly disordered. And at worst, it destroys you and destroys the ones you love. The first uh, typical or, or usual God that we see in our culture is the God of reputation or maybe the God of people-pleasing. I mean, just think about it for a second. It can be your parents. Like, you can be so concerned about pleasing your parents that, uh, they, that they drive everything that you do and, and they drive every way that you think and everything that you feel. You want to please them so much. Parents are a good thing. We want to honor them. We're going to learn that later in the Ten Commandments. Unless it's more important to please them than God himself. Some people are so concerned about pleasing their co-workers or their industry peers. Or maybe it's just the faceless poor. But this is a massive idol. I know it because it's absolutely probably my number one idol is this desire to please other people. Or to have my reputation be something that matters so much to me. Uh, there's a man named David Brooks. Some of you guys are familiar with David Brooks. He writes for the New York Times. And has written other books as well, New York Times bestselling author. But a couple weeks ago, when the, the whole Alex Rodriguez or A-Rod scandal came out, uh, David Brooks had an interesting take on Alex Rodriguez that actually makes this point about reputation, right? And so I'm going to read it. Uh, here's the quote. Uh, he says this, David Brooks says, I started writing a column for the Times about a decade ago, and I endured a tough few, uh, first few months. That was in part because, like anybody starting a new job, I wasn't sure I could pull it off. So especially in the first few months, I had a self-preoccupied question on my mind. How am I doing? There was no non-crazy-making answer to that question. I was always looking for some ultimate validation, which, of course, can never come. And so what David Brooks is doing is he's saying, I was so concerned about pleasing the nameless, faceless horde out there that I actually quit thinking about the actual thing that I was writing. And he's actually using his own experience to link to A-Rod's own experience. Of course, A-Rod you know, took uh, performance-enhancing drugs and has received all sorts of negative press, but here's where he links it to A-Rod. He says this, one of the mysteries around Rodriguez is why the most supremely talented baseball player on the planet would risk his career to allegedly take performance-enhancing drugs. Now, here's David Brooks' theory. He says this, my theory would be that self-preoccupied people have trouble seeing that their natural abilities come from outside themselves and can only be developed when directed towards something else outside themselves. Enclosed in self, they come to believe that their talents come from self, are the self. They have no outside criteria, nothing bigger than they are, that can tell them what their talents are for or when they're sufficient. Locked in a cycle of insecurity and attempted self-validation, their talents are never enough, and they end up devouring what they have been given. Now listen, here's the take on this. At every step along the way, Rodriguez chased self-maximization, which ended up leading to the self-destruction. What Brooks does in this article is he says that what happened with Alex Rodriguez is he became, he became a PR machine, that his public persona became the defining thing about who he was so that it quit being about baseball, it quit being about anything bigger than him, and it became all about his reputation. And having a god of reputation can literally lead to your death, as in the case of the Hatfields and the McCoys. So says Malcolm Gladwell in Outliers. But more likely, if you're a slave to people-pleasing, if your God is reputation, then more likely you'll die in the slow burn of trying to please the faceless, anonymous crowd. 
reputation. People-pleasing is a God that so many of us that serve, we have that God in the presence of the true God. The second God that is very common in our culture is the God of career. For many of us, our identity, maybe it's our parents at this point in time, maybe it's us, but for many of us, our identity is completely found in our career or our vocation as a banker, as a lawyer, as a pastor, maybe even as a mother. You know, I'm a San Diego Chargers fan, which is a little bit like being a Georgia Tech fan, right? Like, you just have to hope that they win six or seven games or whatever. Anyway, I'm a Georgia Tech fan too, by the way. But So one of my favorite players was this guy named Junior Seau, who's a Hall of Fame a middle linebacker for the Chargers. He committed suicide uh, about a year ago. But what's interesting is that uh, one of the things that everyone knew about Junior Seau is that he loved football more than anything else. He was passionate about football. He played until he was like 40 years old for the Patriots. He won a couple Super Bowls. He was just this amazing talent in his whole life, his whole world, his whole identity. Everything that he was was about football. When he retired, guess what happened? In the news, within about a year, we heard about him driving off of uh, a highway on the West Coast and almost dying. People began to speculate, did he try to commit suicide? Was this, a, was this an accident? And he said, no, 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 it was, it was just an accident. I didn't mean to do it. Well, then sure enough, in the last year, he committed suicide. Now, what's interesting is a lot of people are saying this is actually you know, related to brain damage that happens because of playing football, because of concussions or whatever. That's probably true. I'm no scientist. But what I do know is that one of the things that Junior Seau struggled with was having his career, in this case football, as his God, as the thing that was the most important thing to him, a good thing that he made, an ultimate thing. And at the end of the day, like every other false or counterfeit God, that God will ultimately end up destroying us, right? Or it will be the thing that you sacrifice. You'll sacrifice your family or your health or God himself on the altar of whatever that God is, be it career. Last thing. I've got to figure out how to phrase this. Um, I'll say pleasure, I'll use that word. Um, one of the things that we all know that is a God in the culture that we live in is, is our various types of physical pleasure, right? Uh, there was a, I'm an F, I listen to the, the podcast called Freakonomics regularly, and then on it just recently there was an episode where there were these two men that had worked for the FBI, and their job as FBI agents was to, uh, to actually do research on various people in the FBI who had been fired or been punished or had even gone to jail for abusing their position within the FBI. And at the end of this Freakonomics podcast, uh, Stephen Dubner, who's the host of the podcast, asked the two men, he said, hey, what are, what are sort of the things that stand out to you from these people that had been in the FBI that ended up going to jail or abusing their power? What stood out to you about their stories? And uh, one of the men said, oh, without a doubt, uh, all the stories almost always involved a certain type of physical pleasure, right? And, uh, and I heard that, and I thought, well, just, that's just true, right? Because that's a God in our culture. I mean, think about the politicians we know that have sacrificed their careers and their families and all these other things on the altar of that, that God of, of pleasure. Anthony Weiner, right? Uh, David Petraeus, you guys know the story of David Petraeus. Bill Clinton, Elliot Spitzer. What about the religious leaders? Jimmy Swagger, Ted Haggard. I mean, the list goes on and on. How about you go back to the Bible and talk about David and Solomon, right, with Bathsheba and with concubines and many wives. What about, what about the Proverbs when the Proverbs make it so clear to, to beware that, that temptation, right? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We have all these things in our world that aren't little physical idols made of clay. They're not part of the Greek, Roman, or Hindu pantheon, but they are truly good things that we turn into ultimate things. They're things that we end up acting 
in life as such they are more important to us than God. Whether it's fame, comfort, security, beauty, family, friends, drugs and alcohol, football, golf, food, UGA, whatever the case may be. Over and over again we take perfectly good things and we turn them into ultimate things that become more important to us than the God of the universe. It's exactly why the first commandment is there. It's because God knows that it's a temptation for us to take the good things he's created and to worship them before him in his presence. Now, I just have to say this. I hope that by this point in time in the sermon that you come to a point where you go, well, if you define God that way, then yeah, I definitely have broken the Ten Commandments, right? The first commandment. I've definitely had other things in my life that were more important to God. And so I hope you've come to that point this morning of, of saying, yeah, there have been times where I've lied, and the reason I lied is because that person's perception of me at the moment was more important than God's perception of me. Or, yeah, you know, I, I did actually steal that thing because at the moment having that thing was more important to me than God. Or, yeah, I did look at that thing on the Internet because at that point my physical experience was more important to me than God. And so if you define God that way, guilty. I've broken the first commandment. Now, if you guys remember from the very beginning, part of what I've talked about with the Ten Commandments is part of what they do is they actually paint a picture of the world, of the society that we really wish that we lived in, right? I mean, they really do that, right? And I don't want you to miss that. But at the same time, I don't want you to miss the second thing I've said either, which is the purpose of the Ten Commandments, according to the book of Galatians, is to drive us to Jesus. Because at every point where we failed in regards to these various idols, Jesus actually succeeded throughout his, his entire life. He was faithful to God in terms of having no other gods before the presence of his heavenly Father, right? I mean, think about Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness, right? I mean, essentially what Satan was doing was he was offering Jesus three huge idols. He was offering Jesus power. He was offering Jesus comfort. He was offering Jesus security. Those are huge idols for all of us in this room. And at each and every one of those points, Jesus chose God, right? When Jesus was tempted to please the nameless, faceless horde of humanity, instead of pleasing his father, he chose God. When Jesus was faced with pleasing the religious leaders who were very powerful, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus chose God. When Jesus was faced with the choice of choosing his family, he chose God, right? Over and over and over again, Jesus chose God at the very points in which we chose and choose those counterfeit gods. At every point along the way, Jesus was faithful where we were unfaithful, right? Jesus kept this first commandment perfectly. And the reason he kept this first commandment perfectly is because he loved his Father and because he loved you and I enough to uphold God's law completely and perfectly, not just at those moments, but through all 33 years of his life. So that for those of us who have come to a point of recognizing our sin and our brokenness and our rebellion against God, when we confess, God, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, we can turn to Jesus and understand that salvation is entrusting in Jesus' perfect life, his death and resurrection on our behalf. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that the Ten Commandments not only paint a picture of the world that we truly desire, but I thank you, Father, that the, the Ten Commandments actually show us our rebellion and show us our uh, inability, Father. 
And, and Father, I pray that this morning, rather than uh, wallowing in our failures of having other gods before your presence, that instead, Father, we would confess those sins to you and we would admit to you that our family or our friends or sexuality or power or comfort or pleasure of whatever sort, that we actually have valued those things more than you. We'd worship those things, Father. I pray that we would confess those sins to you, but I pray that those very sins would drive us to your son, Jesus. And I pray that our trust and our security and our hope would be in the mercy that you offer us in him. Father, we pray all of these things today, again, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.